Support for SyncBook Radio comes from listeners like you. Consider helping to make independent productions like SyncBook Radio possible by becoming a donor. Your generous gift helps to keep these unique voices broadcasting and exploring. Details about how you can help can be found at thesyncbook.com slash donate. Thanks. The time for thinkers has come, and the time for revolutions, ecclesiastic and social, must come. Mary Baker Eddy, 1875. An ancient philosopher once said, He who has not even a knowledge of common things is a brute among men. He who has an accurate knowledge of human concern alone is a man among brutes. But he who knows all that can be known by intellectual energy is a god among men. Man's status in the natural world is determined, therefore, by the quality of his thinking. As philosophy is the science of estimating values, the superiority of any state or substance over another is determined by philosophy. By assigning a position of primary importance to what remains when all that is secondary has been removed, philosophy thus becomes the true index of priority or emphasis in the realm of speculative thought. The mission of philosophy, a priori, is to establish the relation of manifested things to their invisible ultimate cause or nature, and the ideal function of philosophy is to serve as the stabilizing influence in human thought. A little philosophy inclineth man's mind to atheism, but depth and philosophy bringeth men's mind about to religion, Sir Francis Bacon. Hello and good morning. I am William Morgan, and you are listening to 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. It's a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. You can find us online at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets and retweets at Sync42 and at Syncbook. Today is the 17th day of December, but this is our 165th broadcast presented on December 30th, hopefully beginning 2015 in a positive manner. Yesterday, we failed to recognize the birthday of our show's patron saint. Happy birthday, PKD, 86 years old and 32 years gone. Matter is plastic in the face of mind, Ballast, 1981. Also, we failed to wish everyone a happy Hanukkah. In this season of light and warmth, we are happy and thankful that you have chosen to share it with us in Sync Book Radio. Today, we begin a month of programs on Manly P. Hall, yet we begin the series with Curly's advice from City Slickers. One thing, just one thing. You stick to that, and the rest don't mean shit. That's actually closer to the truth than you know, Will, but it goes farther back than 1991, and today's guest is ideally suited to trace that lineage of the one simple idea. Hello friends, Doug here, and today we're sharing 42 minutes with the American spiritual historian who determined how positive thinking reshaped modern life in his recent book, One Simple Idea, published this past January by Crown. This morning, we reconnect with Mitch Horowitz, author, speaker, publisher, and with whom we first met back in February of 2013 for episode number 73. Mr. Horowitz is vice president and editor-in-chief at Tarcher Penguin, the division of Penguin, dedicated to metaphysical literature and publishers of the reader's edition of Manly P. Hall's Secret Teaching of All Ages the subject of our January shows. His previous book, Occult America, received the 2010 Penn Oakland Josephine Miles Award for Literary Excellence, which has written on alternative spirituality for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and many others, and frequently discusses spiritual issues in the national media. 
He is the narrator of many audiobooks, including the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book and the Jefferson Bible. More information about him and his work can be found on his website, MitchHorowitz.com. It really is an honor to have him here again today. Hi, Mitch. How are you doing? Hey, I'm great. Good to be here. Thank you. You bet. I'm thinking about one individual from your book when we referenced the City Slickers quote, and that person has done so much to influence uh, modernity. Um, What is the organization he founded, and how come some people may only know him by his first name and his last initial? You're speaking, of course, about Bill W. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. I was uh, touched to hear you quote Curly from City Slickers, a movie that I recently re-watched with my kids. I've quoted that line from Curly before. It's interesting things that you can find in movies and screenplays, which are often the repository of parables and expressions and wisdom that people have accumulated over time. And that idea of being good at one thing, dedicating yourself to one thing, is a very profound concept that Bill Wilson used to save his life. Uh, Bill decided uh, when he was in the depths of alcoholic depression uh, to dedicate himself to one principle alone, and that was staying sober. And he found that when he threw his entire existence behind that one aim and combined it with a dedicated religious faith, he was suddenly able to free himself from drinking in a way that he had never been able to previously in his life. And he felt that he had come upon a spiritual program for self-help, which he brought to other people in the form of Alcoholics Anonymous and the famous 12 Steps. But what I write in the book, and what relates well to the quote from our friend Curly from City Slickers, is that at the heart of the 12 Steps, as well as at the heart of any self-help program, any program for spiritual self-renewal, and I believe any real human achievement at all, is the absolute dedication to one goal. And the way to overcome our conditioned and very limited psyches is to expand that dedication through some sort of religious or spiritual dedication, which Bill left purposefully open-ended, referring to God as a higher power, because he didn't want to preach a doctrine. He wanted people of all beliefs and backgrounds and points of view to be able to come to AA. But there's extraordinary power released in an individual's life when he or she is able to commit to one passionately held goal to back it with emotionalized thinking and religious faith. That is the story of Bill Wilson. That's the story of his achievement. Uh, That's what's being referred to really in Curley's quote. And, uh, I think it's it's probably a, 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 a formula that can be found at the root of all significant human achievement. But he didn't invent his program whole cloth. He was That's definitely right. part of a, a time and a place. And so recently we had a gentleman by the name of Jack Hitt on the program talking about a book he wrote about the optimistic quality of the American character. But what's interesting is I think your book actually adds a level of depth to his thesis that a lot of people may not be aware of. Could you give us a brief sketch of the history of positive thinking? The history of positive thinking is really as deep as American religion itself. From early on in this nation's existence, going back to the 
colonial days, which was a period of time filled with chapbooks and little pamphlets that people would write on building good character, uh, early Americans tended to believe that religion had to be practical. Religion had to apply itself to the problems of day-to-day life. It wasn't just a matter of salvation. It was also a matter of therapeutic improvement of oneself. Uh, of refinement of one's personal character. That sounds very ordinary today, but it was unheard of in the mid-1700s. The closest that anyone came to it uh, was the Swedish scientist and mystic Emanuel Swedenborg, who was what we today would call a spirit medium or a channeler. He would go into these trance states, and he would, from an entranced state, dictate these massive metaphysical treatises in which he would say he had visited other dimensions and other planets, other realms of reality, and he would talk about man being on a continuum of cosmic laws, and that everything that went on in our day-to-day lives on Earth was a mirror of something that went on in the spiritual realm, the unseen realm, and that man could channel the laws of the unseen realm in effect through his own thought. This idea uh, was popular among liberal religionists in Europe, but it really took flight in America. And once Americans got their hands on this notion that there was only a thin line of tissue separating mental experience from spiritual experience, Americans began wondering how the use of our thoughts could help channel and direct some of these cosmic laws. And by the mid-1800s, around 1845 and a few years following, there were different spirit mediums and religious radicals writing books interpreting Swedenborg and trying to understand how our thoughts could actually outpicture into reality. That's the earliest stirrings of the positive thinking movement. You find it in the work of figures like Andrew Jackson Davis, who was known as the Poughkeepsie Seer. He was a Hudson Valley, New York spirit medium. Uh, You find it in the work of Warren Felt Evans, who was a Methodist minister who converted to the spiritual ideas of Swedenborg. You find it in the work of Phineas Quimby, who was a Maine-based clockmaker who came to feel through his own personal experiments that he had identified a protocol whereby we could use our thoughts and our prayers and our directed emotions as a literal healing force. And you find it in the work of one of Quimby's students and collaborators who later uh, distanced herself from him but was for a time part of his world, and that's the woman you quoted at the top of the show, Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of the religion of Christian science. Uh, Eddie had a different point of view from Quimby. They parted ways on many tenets of thought, but her basic idea was that the awakened and illuminated mind could itself be a repository for a divine influence that could heal, that could solve problems, that could rearrange the torpor and the violence and the physical disability that people experience in our world. So you had this range of experimenters in New York, New Jersey, the New England states, who were absolutely enthralled with this idea that ultimately mental experience and spiritual experience were the same thing. Their language, their ideas, their concepts is what gave us what later came to be known as the power of positive thinking, the, the, the phrasing under which this movement was popularized. There are many different names and movements that people tagged on to these 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 mental metaphysical philosophies 
but positive thinking came to be the umbrella term under which this outlook is known. And people think of positive thinking today as something that just belongs on coffee mugs with smiley faces and page a day calendars and, you know, little refrigerator magnets that tell you to have a nice day. But uh, the roots of this idea uh, go back to a time of great religious experimentation in this country. And positive thinking really sums up the American spirituality, America's spiritual contributions of the world, which again is this idea that mental experience and f- spiritual experience conjoin and are separated by only a, a very thin line of demarcation. That's basically positive thinking, and that's, that's the American spirituality. One of my favorite anecdotal stories in both your books actually is the is about the gentleman who started Psycheana and I don't know what it is mm-hmm. about that one but you know what did he do that you're referring to Frank B Robinson he was one of the most colorful figures to come out of the positive thinking tradition um <clears throat> Frank was a pharmacist who uh was was born in the late Victorian age in Canada, abandoned uh, by his parents. Um, in the early 20th century, Frank uh, bopped all around Canada and the American West. Uh, he joined the Navy, Navy, the U.S. Army, the Canadian Royal Mounted Police. He was kicked out of all these organizations for binge drinking. Uh, He finally pulled his life together as a pharmacist. He married, settled in Idaho just before the Great Depression. And um, just at the dawn of the Great Depression, uh, Frank, who had been a religious seeker all his life and had been very frustrated at never really finding a religion that he felt worked, a religion that he felt produced a refined and capable and empowered individual, Frank felt that he had independently made a great discovery, which was in essence, our thoughts are God, that the mental pictures that populate your imagination, the emotionalized thoughts that you feel in your mind and body are in actuality the creative force that man has referred to metaphorically and has wrongly personified as a distant God outside of our bodies. So Frank was absolutely enchanted with this idea and he in a dream, received a name for his philosophy, which was Psycheana, which sort of had this wonderfully modern ring to it at the time. Americans were interested in psychology, studies of the unconscious, as this exciting new technology of human behavior. So Frank uh, borrowed some money, write out, wrote out some lesson plans, also on a borrowed typewriter, and uh, In the late 1920s, he began to advertise his lessons into the philosophy of Psycheana in digests and magazines and on the back of matchbooks, and the response was overwhelming. Uh, He became an almost immediate success. People wrote in first in the hundreds, then in the thousands, then in the tens of thousands for Frank's lesson plan, and eventually for $20, you could get 20 pamphlets educating you in this new religion of Psycheana. And Frank's thesis, which he stood by until the end of his life in the late 1940s, was that your mind is God. Your mind is God. And he attracted, for a time, an enormous following 
just millions of people at one period of time in the depths of the Great Depression were writing into Frank. And of course, critics then and today would say he was nothing but a huckster, nothing but a P.T. Barnum. That wasn't the experience of people who subscribed to his lesson plans. Uh, the fees that he charged were certainly not ruinous fees. Um, he was not uh, uh, taking grocery money out of American households. Uh, he received vast numbers of letters from people who said that his lessons had made a true difference in their lives, had marked a turning point in their lives. So Frank B. Robinson is kind of a consummate American spiritual figure in a way. He attracted a great deal of controversy. People were uh, convinced that he was this cynical, greedy, religious huckster. But the fact is, and I go through this in, in both books, uh, his life was marked by a great deal of sincerity, a great deal of earnest religious search. Um, his books and pamphlets were not priced at a level that uh, was outrageous or was taking any kind of uh, rapacious advantage of anybody's finances. And uh, his followers, and for a time there were many, um, to a great extent, uh, adored him, measured by the telegrams and the letters and the correspondence that they sent into his offices and the, the repeat sales of his books. So I, I admire Frank Robinson very much as a great American religious experimenter. Um, he was the kind of figure that you encounter again and again in the history of positive thinking, which is to say somebody who was not formally educated, who was a person from an ordinary walk of life. Uh, his profession was as a pharmacist. He lived in the town of Moscow, Idaho, um, who felt that he had independently come upon a powerful idea. He worked to determine the functions of that idea in his own existence. He shared it with a small circle of friends. He then expanded his congregation, in, in, in Frank's case, by the U.S. mails to reach uh, a larger and larger a congregation of people. And here was a man who was completely outside the fold of any traditional or recognized religion, church, dogma, who just completely on his own decided to fashion his own religion. And I think in some ways uh, that speaks to one of the most appealing aspects of experimentation that you find again and again in the history of religion in America. There's this wonderful do-it-yourself spirit that's embodied by people like Frank Robinson, by people like Bill Wilson, and, and many others, people who didn't look for anyone to place a stamp of approval on their work, who didn't look to any standard sources of uh, degree granting or opinion making or approbation to say that they could do this. They just had an idea and acted on it. It was that simple. What about people like Philip K. Dick? Well, I mean, I view Dick as a great visionary. I don't write about him in the book because he didn't see himself specifically as a, as a metaphysical figure. Um, you know, Dick represented a, a great voice of, of independence and brilliance as a novelist. Uh, you had figures like that in Europe. What was unique in the American experience is that you had figures like that who went out and started movements and organizations and put themselves in a certain sense at the head of a flock or a congregation. Yeah. Okay, but... Most... Well, I, I, hold, hold, Doug, because I'm seeing like all kinds of relationships here. I like the concept of the whole idea of God being the voice inside your head. But, I mean, yeah. with individuals like Philip K. Dick, with uh, Richard Shaver, uh, with all these... 
individuals who have had extraordinary experiences where they were like hearing voices in their head and then yep. confusing those voices with God and then actually like almost starting religions is rampant, it seems, throughout history. Does that, I don't know, it's kind of a weird thought or idea to think about if it is God, like, you know, manipulating culture. And, and an individual like Whitley Strieber, who totally changed culture as far as like the, you, do you understand where I'm going with this? Does this make yep. sense? So what do you think well, about that idea? You know, <laughs> believe me, there are some critics, you know, who would describe all these figures as part of a um, tradition of, of, of American cranks who don't deserve to be taken seriously. But I agree with you that these are people <laughs> who shifted the culture. Uh, Whitley Strieber is a perfect example of somebody in our own time who shifted the culture. I know Whitley well. He's a man of tremendous intellect and earnestness, a deeply searching person. So you, you, you uh, consider him to be not a crank, in other words? No, I don't consider him to be a crank. Definitely not. Um, you know, you could sit uh, Whitley and I down in a room together, and we might agree on some things, disagree on others. Um, there might be areas where I'm in sympathy with him, areas less so. The same would be true of him relating to me. But I, I regard him as somebody who's made a tremendous contribution to our culture and, and who has a really high level of, of writerly and and an intellectual standard that he upholds you know i often encourage people who i publish to read whitley's book communion because among other things what i admire about that book and what's missing in too many popular books today about paranormal experience is that whitley names names neighborhoods dates he's very very specific about what he describes as having happened to him, whose company he describes as having been in. And if somebody wants to, they can peel back the onion on, on his work and do their own detective work to verify it, at least as far as empirical details uh, will reveal things. And I admire that very much in his work. I, I think he's exposed himself a great deal and, 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 and done it with, with a lot of integrity. So these figures, you know, who are kind of outsider figures who claim to have some experience that breaks with all commonly observed experience um, can also be figures of, of, of tremendous intellect and, and their work gains, gains real posterity. I mean, the figures we've mentioned, you know, Dick, Shaver, Strieber, they're all very different people. Uh, but in the case of um, Dick, certainly, and I think Strieber, um, their, their, their work, their writing has gained posterity. And I think that, too, can say something about the worth of a, of a body of work. Well, talking about cultural influence, then, I want to talk about an outsider figure that we probably don't even know that he was an outsider figure, and I'm talking about a president, um, a, a positive-thinking president who really had a positive message but may be considered a conspiracy theorist. Could you explain who I'm talking about and, and uh, also tell who influenced him? Well, you're not talking about Jimmy Carter, although <laughs> he actually had occult and paranormal views of his own. But you're talking, of course, about President Ronald Reagan, uh, a man who I write about a lot in the new book, and who was a remarkable and interesting figure, uh, but, 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 but for reasons that people often miss or overlook. Um, <clears throat> several years ago, uh, I discovered an extraordinary confluence of language between uh, some writings of Ronald Reagan's, specifically some of his speeches and an essay that he personally hand-wrote for Parade Magazine in 1981, and the work of the occult scholar Manley P. Hall, to whom you guys are, are dedicating a, a series of shows. Um, Hall, of course, was the author of The Secret Teachings of All Ages, as well as literally thousands of other 
essays, pamphlets, articles, books, lectures, an enormously prolific figure. And Hall, at the heart of his work, believed that uh, all across human history, you could detect the presence of certain secret societies who served as the curators and the preservers of certain ancient aspects of wisdom dating back to ancient Egypt, and that at various times, uh, these figures helped to move forward the human project of liberty and learning and education and some kind of universal comity. A good example might be the so-called Rosicrucian Brotherhood that appeared at, at the very end of the, the Renaissance that, that probably served as, as an inspiration to uh, modern Freemasonry and, 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 and as a, a so-called secret brotherhood uh, circulated some ideas of radical ecumenism and universal goodwill and the importance of separation of church and state, which at the time were very radical. Um, Reagan, it turns out, tells a story in one of his most frequently delivered speeches and in this essay that he hand wrote for Parade Magazine of a mysterious figure who helped strengthen the spirits of the delegates to the um, uh, convention in, 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 in Philadelphia where the, the Declaration of Independence was signed and the American nation, in essence, was founded. Uh, according to the story that Reagan wrote, there was this, this, this chapter of history in which the delegates to, at the Philadelphia convention were frightened, were wavering, were backing off from the declaration of a U.S. republic, and this mysterious man who somehow had slipped in and out of the locked and guarded room without anyone else's awareness, stood up and delivered this extraordinary piece of oratory in which he strengthened the, the, the spirits of the wavering delegates, and they all rushed forward to sign the Declaration of Independence. And Reagan wondered, could this be some mysterious agent of a, of a beneficent hidden brotherhood who assisted in the founding of the American Republic? And I, I read this, and I scratched my head. And I realized, my God, I've seen this before. It is straight out of Manly P. Hall's 1944 book, The Secret Destiny of America. And so I got myself to asking, well, look, this, this story has appeared in different variations, different times and places. Um, I was eventually able to trace it back in its original form to a, uh, the work of a writer named George Lippard, who is a contemporary of Edgar Allan Poe. The story uh, originated with Lippard. That's the earliest point of inception that I've, that I've found the story uh, in a collection that he wrote called Legends of the American Revolution in the mid-1800s. Uh, but the phrasing of Reagan's story is dead to rights, the same phrasing as Manly P. Hall's. He uses some of the same phraseology in certain spots. And the Lippard collection, which is greatly obscure, almost no one has heard of it, is not known. Whereas Manley Hall's book was in you know, relatively accessible circulation, especially in Southern California, where both Manley Hall and Reagan lived. And there is a dead-to-rights matchup between Reagan's language and Hall's, and he repeated this language, Reagan did, at many different times throughout his career, including uh, a speech he gave to a television audience of literally millions of people at the uh, Statue of Liberty uh, centenary celebration. And I found several other correspondences between Reagan's thought and writings and certain things that Manley Hall had written. There's no question 
that Reagan was reading Manly P. Hall. Let that sink in for a minute. <laughs> this is <laughs> one of the most popular conservative presidents of American history. And it is dead to rights plain. And I go through the forensics both in my book and in articles uh, in the Washington Post and elsewhere that there's an intersection between Hall's writings and Reagan. So the most popular conservative president of the 20th century, one of the most popular of all contemporary American presidents, was reading, quoting, and borrowing from the work of this somewhat underground occult and esoteric scholar, Manly P. Hall, who folks just didn't stumble upon by accident. If you want to find Manly Hall's work, you do have to kind of go looking for it. Uh, that was certainly true in the pre-digital age. And <clears throat> Reagan, throughout his career, had a persistent influence of New Age and esoteric thinking, which some of which he had picked up um, as a kid growing up in the Midwest, and, and some of which he had picked up in the 30 years that he and Nancy Reagan had spent in Hollywood. I mean, the, the, the simple fact is, Ron and Nancy Reagan were Hollywood New Agers in as much as all their, many of their friends and neighbors were. They were conservative, to be sure, but that was not such an unusual combination in Southern California in those days, and it's not so unusual today. Um, when they would get together at dinner parties with friends like Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz and William Holden, people were interested in astrology, numerology, UFOs, spirit communications. This was Southern California. Uh, and Reagan and, and, and his wife were very much part of the social and spiritual mores of Hollywood. They were proud to be part of those social and spiritual mores. There was no embarrassment about any of this. In fact, one of the things I write about in the book, the, the, the new book, is that when Reagan was running for president against Jimmy Carter, he gave a long three-hour interview to a freelance journalist, and her article later appeared in the Washington Post, and it was syndicated in a number of newspapers, in which he spoke admiringly about the psychic Gene Dixon, who was a friend of the Reagans, both from Hollywood and Washington. And he talked about Dixon and the... Um, uh, foreseeing part of her mind, that was his phrase, the foreseeing part of her mind, the so-called prophetic part of her mind, um, was was kind of gung-ho for him to be president, but she never really saw him in that position. And he goes on and on, very seriously discussing all this. He speaks proudly to the reporter of being an Aquarian, which he calls uh, one of the most uh, energetic and high-achieving of all the zodiac signs. Uh, at other times, he spoke to a reporter for the Wall Street Journal about having witnessed UFOs. Reagan could be remarkably open and unembarrassed about all this stuff. And I was touched by that quality in him. You know, there was no moral embarrassment about any of this. He would talk about astrology. He would talk about prophetic dreams, about near-death experiences, about um, numerology, uh, UFO sightings. And, 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 and there's a beeline throughout his career of him speaking publicly and on the record about all this stuff. There may have been political aides in the background going, oh, Jesus Christ, there goes Ron again, you know, get him <laughs> off the you know, astrology stuff, please, God, get him off that. But, but it never disabled his career. You know, it's hard to imagine today, you know, I mean, if, if Obama were to say something 
about astrology, you know, it would give Fox News programming for an entire month, you know. But Reagan was able to get away with this. There may be other social factors at, at, at work in that, some of which are disturbing. But the fact is, Reagan was able throughout his entire career uh, to speak pretty forthrightly uh, uh, not always frequently, but 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 consistently throughout his career, about these interests and these beliefs, and so you know his interest in the new age and the esoteric went beyond just an occasional dabbling in newspaper astrology. It was a it was a, it was a lifelong influence, and it's right there in his having read and quoted from Manly P. Hall. I don't know if there's any other uh, uh, recent president about whom that could be said. Mm-hmm. So I, I was very surprised to to discover that aspect of Reagan's life. And as I kind of peeled back the onion, uh, more and more of it came into view. I was, I was pretty surprised too. Uh, I'm actually pretty new to Manly P. Hall's secret teachings. It's something that I've always been curious about. And that's one of the reasons why I conceived this idea of a whole series of shows on it. But as I dove into the introduction, I didn't, you know, I, I realized that the emphasis he places on philosophy you know, as, yep. as a way of sussing out meaning and wisdom as a response to materialism. Could you speak a little bit about Manly P. Hall and the secret teachings as a thing and why he, how and why he created the thing? Well, Manly felt that philosophy as a practical art of self-transformation was being lost uh, in the early 20th century. Uh, by the 1920s, uh, while he was still a very young man, I mean, he had only been born in 1901, uh, when The Secret Teachings was published in 1928, he was all of 27 years old, which is part of the mystery of his life, because anybody who's approached the work is aware that it's an extraordinary, epic compendium of philosophy and symbolic analysis, uh, myth, legend, all kinds of esoteric wisdom. It's an unclassifiable and enormous work written on a scale like nothing else has ever been written on the various esoteric traditions of antiquity. Manly felt that philosophy as a practical art, as an art of wonder, as an art of mystery, as an art of self-transformation, was being lost. Uh, That scholastic, academic philosophers were all but dismissing the ideas of the ancient societies, the ancient mythical societies, Egypt, Greece, Rome, as ideas that that at times fit into the stepping stone of the development of logic in our own contemporary viewpoint, but that any of the spiritual or religious perspectives that were enunciated uh, in the ancient philosophies belonged in a museum case. They were of no use or no relevance to contemporary men and women. Yes, we could pick out certain things uh, that, that that contributed to the development of modern ethics and logic in the work of some of the greats, but by and large, none of the metaphysical thought of the ancients was anything other than a a museum curiosity, worthy of classification, labeling, and placement almost tomb-like into a museum uh, display, and nothing more. And Manley felt that we needed to go back in time and resurrect and anthologize the ideas of the metaphysical thinkers from antiquity up to the, the late Renaissance and the Elizabethan era. He felt that there were a stream of symbolic religious ideas from the ancient world up through the early modern world that revealed 
almost this clockwork intelligence behind the workings of the universe revealed something about man's role as an extra physical being, man's possibilities as a being who could experience spiritual refinement and aspire to something greater in life, and that these ideas were encrypted and encoded in symbols, uh, alchemical symbols, astrological symbols, all kinds of sigils and codes and secret rites and ceremonies that you might find vestiges of, for example, in Freemasonic initiatory ceremonies. He believed that you could find threads and vestiges of this secret teaching, this secret philosophy that had been at one time maintained in mystery schools like those of Pythagoras, uh, within the mystery religions of uh, Egypt, Greece, Rome, within initiatory ceremonies and rites and reenactments that had gotten preserved in certain fraternal orders, most especially Freemasonry, uh, that existed through or emerged after uh, the, the occult rebirth during the European Renaissance. And so Hall wanted to create this great living document of these transformative esoteric philosophies. That was his goal in the secret teachings of all ages. And uh, he came closer to any modern person in, in achieving that. The book is just absolutely monumental. It's a delight. It can be read from start to finish, uh, particularly in the, the reader's edition that you guys were referencing at the beginning of the show, but in any of its editions. Uh, the original editions published by his organization, the Philosophical Research Society, are irreplaceable. Uh, they're lavishly illustrated. Uh, many, but not all of those illustrations are preserved in the reader's edition. And um, the book was laid out in such an elliptical and challenging way that it was hard for people to get at the idea that you could actually just sit down and turn the pages and treat it as an armchair read. And you very much can. Uh, if you sit down and read the secret teachings, rather than being deterred by its scale and and, and, and epic qualities, you'll discover, uh, to your delight, I think, that the book's very readerly. You just turn the pages. Very clear, uh, very expository, very beautifully written in certain parts. It's an adventure. It's a great, wonderful adventure. And how Manley Hall, who had no visible formal education, how he produced this this massive compendium, this very learned work at the age of 27, by the age of 27, is really remarkable. You know, if someone had dedicated their entire life to that one book, you'd have to say, well, that was a remarkable achievement. But for somebody to produce that book kind of at the opening gun of their career at the age of 27 is absolutely remarkable. He had produced writings prior to that, certainly, but nothing on that scale and nothing that revealed that kind of promise. Uh, in that regard, the, the book itself is, is something of a mystery. Well, that's fabulous. So we're, we're in for a treat then and a real adventure. And as we wind down, I just want to go back to positive thinking because there's an interesting little thing here. You note a problem with the positive thinking movement, and I think this may also be a problem potentially in the synchronicity movement. I'm just wondering if you could speak to that a little bit as we wind down. 
Well, the problem I see in the positive thinking movement is that in 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 the movement's enthusiasm at various times over various stages of its unfolding, uh, followers and exponents of positive thinking or, or or various permutations under which it's been known, new thought, unity, divine science, and so forth, have wanted to seize upon the idea of there being one mental super law that controls all of life. This is sometimes captured in the phrase law of attraction. And my contention in the book is that we've seen enough evidence in many, many different fields from medicine to psychology to the hard sciences to emergent fields like neuro neuroplasticity to support the contention that the mind does have some kind of causative properties. And we're just at the beginning of that very, very, very deep mystery. But I think it's a mistake to make the leap to this idea that the mind is this one overall super law controlling everything. I believe we live under many, many different laws and forces, including physical limitations. Mortality alone tells us that. So the movement has always had this moral pitfall, which is ascribing people's uh, the events and circumstances of people's lives back to the thoughts of the individual. I don't see how you can support that. I think that the mind evinces one force under many forces and laws under which we live. And that's extraordinary enough. That's fascinating enough. Just standing in front of that mystery is enough to bring a person to, to his knees in the awe of it. But there's no need to make a hasty jump to this idea, which I don't think is verifiable, uh, that the mind is is, is this one all controlling super law. I think we live under many laws and forces. And and what about the idea of no accidents? I don't support that idea. I think man lives under accidents all the time. I think one of the most frustrating aspects of life is that we live under accidents. You could be uh, a person born into a poor society living on an earthquake fault, and that's not your fault. Uh, people talk about karma and reincarnation and so forth, but that starts very quickly to exit verifiable experience. I do think people live under accidents. I do think there is an aspect of tragedy to life and that, that we're, we're conscripted to live under that. At the same time, I do think that the mind and the deeply sensitive individual can exert some force of influence. I think we've repeatedly seen that backed up in a wide variety of fields of study, and I deal with some of that in the book. And that contention alone is extraordinary enough. And how would you square that with the idea of synchronicity? Well, synchronicity seems to reveal some kind of meaningful aspect to life, and I think the two ideas do intersect. I think that we've seen enough in the study of the human psyche to allow us to consider the reality that life is more than just physicality. And if life is more than just physicality, my thoughts may be going out um, like a, a transmissions from some sort of a transmitting station all the time, looking for people and possibilities and events that may help me or may meet me halfway or may provide something that I need. It may not work all the time because there's a crisscross of all kinds of things happening in reality, but that may be one factor. And in that sense, positive thinking and synchronicity seem to intersect. That was 42 minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Mitch Horowitz on SyncBook Radio, a production of thesyncbook.com. Information about the work of Mr. Horowitz can be found at MitchHorowitz.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guest, to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, 
please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you'd like to support the show, we urge you to become a donor. You'll find the donation links under each episode on the website and consider setting up a monthly charge. Thanks so much. And as Phil related, the trouble with being educated is that it takes a long time. It uses up the better part of your life. And when you are finished, what you know is that you would have benefited more by going into banking. Yeah.